0: Okay, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, The first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, we already looked at the first several verses here. As I mentioned last time, I know it's been a a, a while, uh, but this is one of the central passages in all of Scripture that deals with suffering for the sake of the Lord. And Smyrna was a city where Christians suffered tremendously because Smyrna at that time was a city that was in competition with Ephesus for recognition as the most splendid city of Asia Minor. And it was very proud of its devotion to Rome and to emperor worship. They boasted. And what's interesting is of the seven churches here in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, this church in Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches that Jesus wrote to where he did not have any complaints. There's only commendation, encouragement, eternal to or promise of eternal life. And most believe that the reason why Smyrna was included is because they did suffer for the cause of Christ. We are called to suffer. And this church suffered because this city, if you recall I mentioned, was very fervent with emperor worship. They boasted to be the leader in that area of emperor worship. And those who refused to worship the emperor, they would be executed. They were liable for that. And it also suffered because it had a sizable group of people, a Jewish population. And there was great antagonism between the Jews and the Christian community, the church. And so the Jews many times would slander the Christians and expose them to the Roman uh, authorities so that they would be uh, arrested and even uh, executed. And so the evidence that we have when we look back with archaeology and all the studies that have been done, when we look at the evidence of uh, uh, the Smyrna at that time, it shows that life for faithful Christians was very, very dangerous. In fact, it was more dangerous there than anywhere else in the Roman Empire. Okay, so it was very difficult. And if you recall... When it comes to suffering, uh, before we actually got into this study, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 7, and I want to read that by way of reminder. Because Peter said, <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 to 7, he said, "In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." And then first two words of verse 7, so that. Remember, I made mention of that. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point being is that from this we see that whenever we suffer, there's a divine design behind it. God has a purpose. We never suffer for no reason, right? And that's why I said back then, I say again, I praise God that there's always a so that before we suffer. There is a suffering, but God has a so that involved in that suffering. It emphasizes here that there's always a higher spiritual end in view for the sake of which God orchestrates our troubles and our trials. So whatever the suffering may be, God has a purpose. There's a so that. You're going through that so that. I always think of it in those terms. And then we started looking at this passage, and in verse 8, we open up with this description of Jesus. Jesus is the first and the last. This indicates his comprehensive control over all of history, over every event that transpires. Nothing takes place that Christ is not aware of or in control of. So in the role of eternal and infinite one, he gives this word of encouragement to this church that is experiencing tremendous trials and some are even facing death. So when it says that he is the first and the last, we see first of all that this phrase refers to his sovereign control over all of history. I mentioned that the last time. Since he is first, that means he was before all things because if there was something before him, he would not be first. So the fact that he is first, he's before all things. Right? Makes sense? Right? Nothing comes before first. That means he's the source. He is the source. Since he is the last, then he is left when everything ends. Nothing comes after him. He's last. So neither time nor things within time pose any limitation to Jesus Christ. He is unlimited. He is limitless. There's nothing beyond him. So as the last, he is the one toward which everything is moving. He is the goal for which everything exists. And he's the final explanation of everything that is. You take Christ out of that picture, and you're left with chaos. He is the first and the last. And so, uh, for the, the Christians here in Smyrna, through all of their suffering, they can rest assured that Jesus Christ is at the beginning of it, and he will be there at the end of it and all the way through. And that's true not only for them, but it's true for you and me today. Christ is the first and the last. And he's all the way through. We also saw <clears throat> excuse me, that he suffered to the point of death. And we celebrated this last week as the eternal God. He became fully human, underwent the agony of death and the great victory of the resurrection. And so he experienced death. He, he rose in uh, triumphant victory. And as a result, that means every person, every child of God, when they die, will rise again. Death cannot hold us. And so when we suffer, even to the point of death, we will rise again immediately because of Jesus Christ. And so we have to trust in the reality that death does not mark the end, but death actually marks the beginning. See, we have this concept in the world today that death is something to be afraid of, and death is, oh no, it marks the end. No, in reality, death is, I like to explain this to my patients. If you know Jesus Christ, death is a door. You're opening up a door and walking into his very presence. That's death. And that's what he's telling them. That's what he tells us. So regardless of what comes across our path in this world, even if it comes to the point of suffering to death, understand death, that reality is actually an open door into the presence of Almighty God. Where there's joy and no more pain, death will never take hold of us. And it's hard uh, but it's something we have to meditate on. Because when we look at death, it, it's, it's sort of like, oh, this is the final. This is finality. But biblically, death is not final, not for us. Death is just the beginning of this incredible life in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's how we must face it. And so Jesus is our example, who in faithfulness suffered to the point of death. And so we want to follow his example. Notice in verse 9, we we talked about this as well, that Jesus knows your suffering. He knew the afflictions these Christians suffer as a result of their testimony, that they suffered uh, tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy. And for blasphemy, we could say slander. And when we say that Jesus knows, it's not that he just knows about it. The term knows here is something intimate. He has intimate knowledge. He's there with you. Okay, he feels that with you. So it's not that he just says, yeah, okay, yeah, you're going through this. No, he is there. He knows it deeply. And what I find here is he talks about, he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and your blasphemy. I look at this and I think, how would the church today respond if somebody was experiencing tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy? Many times they would look at that and think, They did something wrong. Wow, I wonder what they did to deserve this. They look at it negatively. And I think this statement here in verse 9 is an indictment against the church because Jesus Christ praises them for this. Because of your faithfulness, you're experiencing this tribulation, this poverty, this blasphemy. It's a good thing. But how sad that in the church, if somebody was going through this, we think, I wonder what they did to deserve that. Oh, they probably did this, or that. and we begin to speculate about their lives and why they deserved that. And Jesus says, "No, this is commendable. When we suffer for Christ and we go through this, it's commendable. That's something we should praise God for." Right? Even Peter in the book of Acts praised God that He was worthy to be um, uh, to suffer for Him. We just don't see that in the church today. Jesus knows when his own suffer. Now notice these three. He knew about the heavy pressure they were under. That's what tribulation uh, refers to. It means pressure. It's, it's a picture of a rock, this massive rock that is rolling down and just crushes everything in its way. That's tribulation. They were having the life squeezed out of them. He knows about their extreme poverty. And that's part of the suffering that they went through. The, the Greek term here for uh, poverty means beggarly destitute, utterly without means. They didn't have what it takes to live. What's really interesting is that Smyrna was a very wealthy city. And so in the midst of an extremely wealthy city, we have these Christians uh, that were suffering this great poverty. And the reason being is because the, the society was very hostile to them. They were antagonistic to Christianity, and therefore it would be difficult for followers of Christ there in Smyrna to earn a living. They would be excluded. So he knew their extreme poverty. Then he knew about their blasphemy, or the not their their blasphemy, but the blasphemy coming against them. Slander, if you will. And so, yes, there was tribulation, there was poverty, but there was malicious slander and lies to destroy their character. And so those who were claiming to be real Jews were casting these slanderous thoughts. And of course, Jesus says they they may be uh, Jews biologically. But they're not true Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan because they're doing the work of, the, of Satan. And we know that the devil is the slanderer. That's what he does. And that's what they were doing. And that's where we ended. So we want to pick up in verse 10 and continue in our study. Yes. When it says, yet you are rich, does he mean then spiritually rich? Rich in the sense that, and we're going to talk about this, and okay. when we look at it, we, uh, rich in the sense that no matter what they do, no matter what happens to us here, Think about the wealth that we have in Christ. Something that this world cannot touch, not even Satan himself. So yes, from the world's perspective, they appeared poor, in poverty. But from God's perspective, they were very wealthy. You can't get wealthier than that. And again, I'm glad you brought that up because too often we measure our wealth based on what we have here in this world, right? We compare ourselves to what other people have and we measure our wealth our, uh, quote, richness, if you will, based on whatever what the uh, culture says. And we have to come back to the reality and realize it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what Hollywood says or what the news says. It matters what God says, and God says, I am in Christ. My life is secure, and I have eternal life with Christ. His glory, that's my inheritance. And you can't get richer than that. So yes, the world says you may be impoverished, but God says, you have more wealth than this world can even imagine. And we have to concentrate and meditate on that reality. Because we are, it's easy for us to be misguided by what this world says. And we get consumed in, uh, with, with all the stuff of this world. becomes idols. Now, we come to verse 10. And in verse 10, Jesus begins to tell us how do we deal with suffering. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer, "'Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison "'so that you will be tested, "'and you will have tribulation for ten days. "'Be faithful until death, "'and I will give you the crown of life.'" So the first thing he tells us in the midst of suffering is, do not be afraid. He tells them some of you are going to be put in prison. Do not be afraid. Some of them would even die. And even there he says, do not be afraid. And here's what's interesting. Jesus knows this, but we have to understand he doesn't prevent it. He could have. He could have stopped it. But he didn't prevent it because he has a purpose behind it. He doesn't alleviate the poverty that they were going through. He doesn't publicly vindicate his people in the face of those who hurled these accusations against them. He could have, but he didn't. When Satan moved to incite their imprisonment and even uh, uh, execution, Jesus chooses not to intervene and save them from that. It doesn't mean that Jesus is cold-hearted and He doesn't care. It's that Jesus has a purpose behind it, and we must understand that. Because it's very easy to blame God when we go through this and say, Why, God? Why do I have to go through this? Why are you doing this? Why don't you stop this? He can, but He chose not to. And He commanded in the midst of all this persecution, Do not fear. In fact, the Greek here actually is stop fearing. Stop being afraid. It's emphatic here. Don't be afraid anymore. Don't be afraid of anyone. Difficult, I know. So this church was experiencing persecution, and they were uh, facing this future with fear and trembling. They were scared of what was going to happen. And like so many today, is They consider what is coming down the pike. Many are walking in fear today. I talk to Christians who are, they they pay more attention to the news and they're terrified of the things that you're hearing and what's coming up and things that are happening and they're afraid. And I keep telling them, listen, it doesn't matter what the news says and it doesn't matter what the World Health Organization says or does. It doesn't matter what the president does or says. It doesn't matter what these people say. Our God reigns. He's in control. Nothing happens apart from his permission and his will. And he will work it out according to his good pleasure. Whether we realize it or not, the thing about the Christian life, God doesn't tell us that we have to understand everything, but he does tell us, trust him. So we may not understand what's happening, but God says, that's okay. I know what's going on. Just trust me. Just trust me. And so there's a lot of fear in this world today, even amongst Christians. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. We have no need to fear, which is, again, I know it's it's hard, but it's so critical. So Jesus didn't want them to be afraid, and he doesn't want us to be afraid, because, you see, fear stirs up uncertainty, doesn't it? It causes courage to... Fade away. The theme of fearing is repeated over and over and over in Scripture. Think about the life of Joshua. When we read the book of Joshua, what are the very first words there in the first section? Do not be afraid. Very first words. And he repeats it often. And you read it throughout the entire Old Testament. Psalm 46, verses 1-3 through says, God is our refuge, therefore we will not be afraid. In 1 Peter 3.14, He quoted Isaiah, says, do not be afraid of them. And over and over and over, it's repeated many, many times, Old and New Testament, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. You don't need to be afraid. And so the fact that it is repeated that often means that fear is something we battle that's real. It is something we battle. And he says, do not be afraid. And so God knows that we're going to face fear, and so he addresses it again. And again and again. And notice that he, Satan here, as part of the tribulation, is going to um, arrest them, have them uh, for 10 days. Now, think about that. Even that's limited because God is going to allow it, but He's only going to allow it for 10 days. Right? Our God is sovereign in this. God has ordained His limitation on Satan, and He's ordained His purpose for the believers to go through this persecution, and the purpose is to be tested. In fact, the the Greek emphasizes here to be completely tried, to be completely tested. And it's important to note here that although the persecution is severe, even unto death for some of them, God has not forsaken his people. So regardless of what we go through in this life, regardless of what comes down the pike, we must understand our God is still sovereign and he has not forsaken his people. He will not forsake you. He will not forsake me. His glory is on the line. Do you think he's going to compromise his glory? No, not at all. He is not forsaking you or me. And here's the beauty of it. No, what Satan intended for their destruction. I love this. What Satan intended for their destruction, God designed it for their spiritual growth. I love how God works, right? Satan's intent was to undermine their faith. And it's the same purpose today. He wants to undermine our faith. He wants us to question God. He wants us to doubt God. And the best way to not give in is to not fear. Fear usually causes compromise, doesn't it? When we begin to fear, we begin to cave in. We begin to compromise in the way we live and do and respond. He says, don't be afraid. Stop fearing. Know that God has not forsaken us. He has divinely appointed purpose for us so that we would be made more like Jesus Christ. So we will go through trials. We will go through tribulation. We will suffer. That's why James says in James chapter 1, consider it all joy. In the midst of that suffering, we are to rejoice. Why? Because we know that God ordained it so that we become more like Christ. Is there anything better in this world than to become like Jesus Christ? And so we can rejoice. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be tribulation. Yes, all of these things will hit us. But remember, there's always a so that. God is using it to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice as a result. And so, although Satan's goal and purpose is to hurt us, God takes that and uses it for our good, even if we don't understand it. God's will is sovereign. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Keep that in mind. So if you're going through a difficult time, understand God is bringing it to pass for a good purpose, for His glory and our good. We may not understand it, but by faith we trust. By faith we trust. Because we know He's using it, that we become more like Christ. And to become more like Christ is the epitome of life. And so Satan does it, but God in his sovereignty overrules and accomplishes his purpose. One scholar, I want to read this to you, I thought it was interesting. He said this about suffering and uh, the pain that comes about. He says, Scripture clearly reveals that Satan can subject the loyalty of the followers of Jesus to severe tests that are designed to produce failure. So intense are the pressures to which Satan is able to subject believers that in uh, uh, in the faith of even the most courageous may be found wanting. Satan is, however, limited in what he can do by what God permits and by the intercession of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Furthermore, those who temporarily falter can be restored, and like Peter, can even resume positions of leadership. It is implied, I would have said, I think it is stated clearly, but it is implied that Satan cannot gain ultimate victory over those for whom Jesus intercedes. So Satan will do everything he can to cause us to stumble and fall away from God. But he will never succeed if we are true, faithful children of God. So we could rest in that. So we don't have to be afraid. That's the first way then we deal with suffering is to not be afraid. Jesus is with us all the way through. He's the first and the last. So we can trust God completely. But not only are we not to be afraid, notice the second thing. He says we are to be faithful. Do not be afraid and be faithful. Faithful to the end. And the, the command here carries the note to keep on proving yourselves faithful. You keep striving to prove yourself faithful through to the end. So we're to stop fearing and we were to, uh, they were to continue to demonstrate their faithfulness. Same thing for us. It's interesting because there in Smyrna, faithfulness to Rome was a well-known characteristic of the people. They were known for their faithfulness to Rome. And so there in Smyrna, where they were faithful to Rome, he's calling the Christians to be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. So they would have understand that. It's a wholehearted trust in the Lord. He's sovereign over all of history. Now, this does not mean that suffering is not going to be our lot. But rather, what it means is that all of our suffering, in the end, will come about as victorious. Even when we suffer to death, we have victory. Because we end up in his presence. So there will always be victory that God uh, produces through our suffering. And notice the degree to maintain this faithfulness. It's to death. We should never shrink from dying for Christ's sake. Even if the death is a violent one. Now I know that's easier said than done. It is. When you face death and you're suffering for his sake. It's hard. It's hard. I know it's easier said than done. But this is what we're called to. And by his strength, he helps us. And so I encourage people. I pray for this, but I encourage people all the time. Pray for it. We don't know what's coming down the pipe, but pray. Lord, I pray that if it should be my lot to suffer to the point of death, give me the strength to stand strong right through to death. We don't have it in and of ourselves. But remember, greater is he in me than he that is in the world. And so pray for it. God, give me the strength to maintain faithfulness right through to the end, regardless of what the suffering may be. Jesus stated in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so to take up the cross and follow Christ means that you will go all the way with Christ. He took the cross and died, and we must be willing to die. And believe me, many of you already know, there are many brothers and sisters uh, all across this world who are already facing death and dying for the cause of Christ. May God strengthen us to be those people if that time comes, to maintain faithfulness through to the end. So in times of suffering, this is what the Lord requires of us, fearlessness and faithfulness. That's what he wants. Regardless of what happens to us, we are to be fearless and faithful. That's how we respond to the attacks of the enemy. And this is critical for us because, as you could see, this world is becoming much more antagonistic against Christianity. They hate it. And it's, uh, even in my short lifetime, I've seen a major drastic change, and it's only going to get worse. And I say this not to, the, to, to make you afraid, but to say, God is still sovereign in control. And what I find in this, I tell Christians many times, we should be excited because God told us this was going to happen. So we shouldn't be surprised. So pray. Pray for fearlessness. Pray for faithfulness. And again, I hear uh, many Christians talk about this, and they're so afraid. They say, we don't have to be afraid. We serve the sovereign God that cannot be thwarted. Right? And then, of course, he gives them the promise of reward. He talks that those who remain faithful, he tells them that they would receive the crown of life. And another way to state this I think would have been better from the Greek text is the crown which is life. The crown which is life. It's interesting that he would use this terminology, but that's because of Smyrna. In Smyrna, the faithful servants of the city, those who maintained their, quote, their integrity for Rome, many times they would have their image on a, on a coin and you would know them by that. And the athletes, and they had uh, uh, something like similar to our Olympic Games, but they, the athletes who would win would have these wreaths that would be put on their head, and they'd walk around proudly. Okay, so you, you have these coins, you have these wreaths. And many times these wreaths and these coins were flaunted before the Christians because the Christians suffered so much. And so Christ tells these saints that they are to be faithful to him, and they will be given a better crown, and they would understand what he meant by crown they would be given a far better crown because the wreath that is worn, it'll go away. That coin, gone. But the crown of life that he gives, permanent and eternal. And so they would understand that. So it'd be like us, endure to the end, and I'll give you a great gold medal. Right? They wear this gold medal, those in the Olympics, but the gold medal we have, is eternal and permanent, full of glory. And that's what he's telling them here. Of course, it refers to the life of glory in heaven. Um, it's, it's the crown of life that is true life, enduring life. Um, I, to me, it's, it's uh, I tell people all the time, it, we have to see it as the highest joy, the, the, the greatest glory, the, the immortality that comes with it. It's just overwhelming. And so if the saints in Smyrna pay with their life for the testimony of Jesus Christ, they will receive this imperishable life in eternal glory. And that's the same for us. That's the same for us. And there's nothing on this earth that can compare to that kind of crown. doesn't matter how much gold, how much money, rubies, jewels, none of it can compare to that crown of life. And it's only enduring faith that guarantees this for us. And that's why we're not to be afraid, because when we're afraid, what happens, we begin to compromise, and then people begin to question, do you even truly believe in Jesus Christ? Right? Is the faith real? Real faith endures to the end. Right? So he reminds him of this crown, which is true life, because he knows that the power to persevere comes from the vibrant faith that we have a, a promised reward. When we think about this reward, when we think about this eternal life, that's where we should be able to Find boldness and strength and courage to stand. Because what is in, in, what's in store for us is eternal glory. It's not like you just die and that's it. No. If they, if we face death, if we suffer for the cause of Christ, we must understand that what awaits us is incredible glory. See, Jesus calls for faithfulness unto death again and again by reminding us of that future reality. That depth and that quality and that, that ending, un- unending life that he gives us, it far outweighs whatever you think may satisfy you here. <coughs> and oh, how we have to meditate on this daily. That's why Paul told the Colossians, set your mind on the things above. The reason why he tells us that is because that's where we find boldness and courage. When we meditate on the fact of what happens to us, who we will be, who will we, we will be with forever, Never ever to taste sin and pain and death again. That's ours. That's our reality. That's not fantasy. That's not make-believe. That's our reality. We need to meditate and think on it constantly because it is there that we find courage to realize it doesn't matter what happens here. My reality is much different. He he wants us to focus on that. And this is precisely the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 through 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, think about that. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There are three contrasts here I want to point out to you because they are very important. He talks about momentary light affliction. And what does he contrast that with? Eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, right? So regardless what we go through, whatever it may be, even to the point of death, God says it's momentary and it's very light compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours. That's the first contrast. Second, he says, things which are seen contrasted with things that are not seen. What are the things not seen? The ultimate glory of heaven. The ultimate glory. And then third, he said, things which are seen are temporal. Things that are not seen are eternal. Think about those contrasts. Because these contrasts are our reality. Okay, what we have here is we have eternal weight of glory that we don't see now, but we will see for all eternity. And by the way, that eternal weight of glory that when we're there, we need to understand it gets better when we get there. It does. Think about it, okay? It it, it makes sense. Our God, its how great he is, infinite, is he not? If God is infinite, how long is it going to take God to reveal His glory to you and me? For all eternity. You know what heaven is? I've said this many times. Heaven is God revealing His glory to you and me so that every moment we are there, our joy increases, we are overwhelmed and stunned again and again and again. After 10,000 years when we think we can't handle it anymore, God says, We haven't even begun! gets better and better that's the eternal weight of glory that's reality for us not what this world says and that's why Jesus says don't be afraid that's why Paul could say hey we have this eternal weight of glory it is for all eternity it gets better and better is there boredom in heaven no are you kidding me Every moment we are there, we will be blown away by the glory of God as he reveals it more and more and more. We will be stunned and shocked, overwhelmed for all eternity. I think about those things and since she was up my spine, I said, God, take me today. Then my wife gets mad at me. Just uh, to be there and to experience that, that's our reality. And that's what we have to meditate on and think on again and again and again. Because if not, we, end, uh, we live in fear and we begin to compromise because we become consumed with what this world says we're supposed to be consumed with. And I say forget the world. In fact, I tell people constantly, I say, listen, if you're going to watch the news, you have to watch it in context of scripture. If you can't do that, then don't watch the news. Seriously, don't. Because you will be misled, I guarantee you. You'll be fearful. You'll be afraid. You'll be terrified. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch the news, but watch it in context of Scripture. Our God reigns. He's still on the throne, and He says that we have this eternal weight of glory to look forward to. And as far as I'm concerned, bring it on. Because I'm ready to experience this weight of glory. That's what, that's our reality. Now, notice in verse 11. Uh, he continues with this reward. It says, "He, he Jesus says, He who has in your letter, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now note the word churches, it's plural. That means this is not just for Smyrna. That's for all churches. Lakeside Community is involved in this. This is for you and for me. It's for all churches. He talks about not suffering, we're not going to um, face the second death. And now that's, this is mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. And I just want to read these verses. For, of course, it occurs here in chapter 2, verse 11. But then it occurs again in chapter 20, verse 6. Jesus says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, mentioned again. Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. (coughs) Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, when it says that we will not be hurt by the second death, what's the second death? The lake of fire, right? the lake of fire and this is the place of eternal torment eternal suffering for all those who have not trusted and followed after Christ so while we are in heaven in his presence and experience this eternal weight of glory those who have rejected will suffer eternal torment beyond imagination and I want to emphasize this is not fantasy this is real There are many people who deny this today. Hell is not real. There are even Christians today who are beginning to deny hell and the lake of fire because they they think God would never do that to anybody. And I assure you, this is real. As real as our eternal weight of glory, just as real will be their suffering, eternal suffering for all eternity. And the Greek here in verse 11 is emphatic. It emphasized the fact that there is no possibility at all for harm to come to the overcomer. We will not be affected in any way by the second death. So though we may face physical harm and death here, we will not be touched by the second death. And Again, this is eternal death. This is not a a, a word that's uh, popular out there, annihilationism. Annihilationism means that uh, those who reject Jesus Christ and they die, they're annihilated, they don't exist anymore, so they don't suffer, they just don't exist. This is not annihilationism. This is judgment. This is eternal lake of fire. Suffering like we can't imagine. You know, people have tried to describe it and they come up short. This is unending punishment. All unbelievers will experience that. So no matter how much a Christian suffers physically in this world, we will not suffer in eternity. In fact, no matter how much we suffer here, just remember, compared to the eternal weight of glory, it's light affliction. Now we may suffer something that's deep and profound and hurts deeply. And the last thing we think of is it being light. But the reality is, when you compare it to the eternal weight of glory, it is light. Sure, it's hard. It's a heavy burden. But compared to the eternal weight of glory, it is light. That tells you how great... In other words, the more you suffer, and the deeper the suffering, you have a better understanding of how great glory will be. Right? So the more you suffer, you realize, and this is light? What will the eternal weight of glory be? It'll be even far greater than that. And that's why God allows us to suffer. Let's Understand, I I want to get a point across that's very important for us. Um, We need to understand, because sometimes... Well, too often, we don't like to think about it. But you and I deserve the lake of fire. Okay, that's real, and that's true. We deserve the lake of fire. We need to think about that often. Because too often, I talk to people, I don't like to think about it, it scares me. No, we deserve the lake of fire. There's only one reason why we don't get the lake of fire. And that's because Jesus Christ experienced our eternal death on the cross. That's why if it wasn't for him, if God did not pour out all of his wrath on his son. We are doomed to the lake of fire. We deserve the lake of fire. God would be righteous and just to condemn us in that lake of fire. Think on that often. Think on that often because it is critical we understand that. We have eternal, uh, eternal life not because we're wonderful, not because we're holy, not because we're great, not because we're good. We have eternal life because God poured out His wrath on His Son. He paid the full price. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement, All right? Jesus is our substitute who took on our p- uh, punishment. He took on the penalty for our sin. And I bring that out because sadly today there's a growing number of people who reject penal substitutionary to- atonement. They, they claim that it misrepresents God. All right? They call it cosmic child abuse. If Jesus didn't deserve it, why would God the Father do that to him? Let me tell you, it's popular in, in uh, some of these circles. I remember I was taking a doctoral class and this issue came up. And so the professor. Had us listen to an interview with quote people would call Christian scholars, and this is what they were talking about. It was on a radio program, and you could hear the the commentator talk about how great this is. It's so free. He said, "It always troubled me that God would punish His Son like that, because if God punished His Son, who's to say He won't do that to us?" And they're talking like this, and I I had trouble in that class listening to it. But my fellow classmates did the same thing. In fact, one guy said, "Are these people even believers?" But these are pastors of big churches. And they say, it's hard for me to, excuse me, it's hard for me to trust in a God that would pour out all of this wrath on his child who didn't deserve it. That's child abuse. And they make this illustration, like, if I, as as a dad, did that to my daughter, I'd be arrested for child abuse. And that's the comparison they were making. And I have to tell you, I'm glad he turned it off because I was starting to have really bad thoughts towards these people, like wanting to reach through the radio, right? If we did not have a substitute to die for us, what hope do we have? There is no hope, right? Jesus Christ, by this remarkable and ineffable exchange, died that I might live. He suffered that I would be set free and we need to make this our meditation daily. uh, This is a significant point for Jonathan Edwards. He wrote in one of his resolutions he said this, resolved, when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. So whenever you go through suffering and difficulties compare it to the lake of fire and you begin to realize wait a minute this may be painful but this is nothing compared to what I really deserve. And God gives me eternal weight of glory instead. So, Jonathan Edwards every day would think on that. Every pain he goes through, he would think, This is nothing compared to the lake of fire, what I really do deserve, and I don't get. And I encourage you to do the same thing. Sadly, too many Christians don't like to think about it. They don't, they don't want to think about it. It's too uncomfortable. But I want you to see that we need to think about it. And we will never be hurt by the second death. Not even when Satan brings his accusations against us, we will not be hurt by the second death. So remember this, according to this passage, no matter how bad things may appear, no matter how difficult they are, the reality is that for all those who are true followers of Jesus Christ, things are better than they seem. Always, Things are always better than they seem. And we desperately need to believe this. We desperately need to believe this. That's how we deal with suffering. Oh, what we have in store for us is beyond imagination. Any questions or comments or thoughts? I yes. wonder how in the world unsaved people that exist in the world of it's hard enough for Christians, and we know and have the faith and trust. And even though we don't understand how the world we survive, that's why alcohol and pills are so popular. Yep. alcohol, pills. Not only that, oh, bad thinking, false thinking. You know, man is in charge, man is in control, and on and on and on it goes. Isn't man good? Look how good man is. And I think, really, have you seen this world? So yeah, there's a, but see, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world blinds their eyes so they can't see the reality. Praise God, he's opened our eyes that we can see reality. That although we deserve the lake of fire, we have eternal way of glory that never ends. I don't know about you, but that excites me. I, I remember one time preaching a sermon on that. i tell you what, it became my mother-in-law's favorite sermon. She said when she dies, she wants me to preach it at her sermon, and I, I did. Too. I absolutely love it. It excites me. It sends shivers up my spine. We have eternal weight of glory. When it says eternal weight, that means it gets heavier every moment. It It gets better and better. That's what we have in store for us. Any other comments, questions? Bruce just entered in, and so he asked me to pray at the end of every Bible study. So I'm going to ask Bruce if you could close this off. (laughs) If you could close us off in prayer, just—I oh. <clears throat> just want to return the favor. Okay. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this day that you brought us all back together. Thank you, as well for all, for your word and strength.